Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Today, the third in our three-part series on K-12 education. You recall this whole uh, uh, series of programs was occasioned by Senator Aaron Osmond's uh, controversial proposal to end compulsory education in Utah. He says that uh, parents or some parents are disengaging themselves from the education process. Teachers are taking on too heavy of a load. So we've talked with Senator Osmond. We've also talked with representatives from uh, online and charter schools. We've uh, talked with Professor Ray Reutzel from uh, USU. Uh, and uh, we have talked with uh, Lily Eskelson, Vice President of the National Education Association. Today uh, should be an interesting program. Hope you'll stay tuned to learn about cutting-edge research and innovations in education. We're going to look at where is K-12 education headed or where do our guests think it should be headed? You're welcome to join this conversation at 1-800-826-1495 or by email at upraxcess at gmail.com. On the telephone is Christine Flanagan, director of the Student Experience Lab at the Business Innovation Factory. That's a nonprofit organization in Rhode Island focused on disruptive innovation. This applies to several fields, including education. And uh, Christine Flanagan, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. Appreciate you joining us. We have uh, two professors with us from the Department of Instructional Technology and Learning Sciences in the USU M. Eccles-Jones College of Education and Human Services on campus. Taylor Martin is associate professor uh, and joins us. Thank you. Thank you so much. And uh, Victor Lee, assistant professor in that department. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. And we're going to talk about uh, such things as learning analytics, the quantified self-movement, mobile and wearable devices. Professor Lee uh, studies that, and, of course, disruptive uh, innovation. Let's start with you, uh, Christine Flanagan. Tell us what the uh, Business Innovation Factory is. Well, the Business Innovation Factory essentially is a playground for organizations and people to come together to experiment with new models. Obviously, as I'm representing the Student Experience Lab, uh, I've got a a big-time focus and passion around education, but we also have a couple of other labs up and running, one focused on the patient experience and the other in uh, entrepreneurship. Uh, Remind us what disruptive innovation is. This has become a, a hot topic. Uh, you know, it's a funny question because it depends on who you ask, right? Uh, uh, Clay Christensen, who's sort of the the godfather of disruptive innovation, if you will, uh, his idea or his theory around disruption is that it is uh, innovation that uh, uh, disrupts, well, obviously, uh, that uh, challenges the status quo in a way that hasn't been seen before, and it typically starts with populations and groups where that innovation is inaccessible. Uh, so it would be for, and then slowly but surely, as the uh, innovation becomes more accessible, it travels up the food chain to actually disrupt the uh, entrenched markets, if you will. So how, how does this apply to, to K-12 education? What, what are we seeing? What do, you, what do you think, where do you think this is headed? Uh, you know, disruptive innovation is a tough is a tough sell within education because uh, the system itself has been entrenched for so long. So a lot of the disruptive education that we see has been happening in along the periphery. So uh, charter schools there are quite a few charter schools that are disruptive, but um, according to Clay Christensen, and I think he's right about this, it would not be considered a true disruption yet because it hasn't gotten into the system as a whole. Um, so we see charter school movements that are, are, are tackling more personalized learning, more blended learning, more one-to-one. Um, but seeing that actually get into uh, existing districts and schools has been, has been the challenge. So what are, what are you trying to accomplish at the Student Experience Lab? So within the Student Experience Lab, we take a little bit of a different take. We really believe that students themselves should play an active role in the innovation process. Um, we find it actually can be a great equalizer when it comes to bringing new innovation into districts. And, um, you know, you've got a lot of uh, key stakeholders who are incredibly well-intended, uh, teachers and administrators and whatnot, parents, um, but getting everyone to agree and align around uh, common goals and expectations is, is very, very challenging. So what we've been doing of late is applying what we call design, the design thinking process, which is more, uh, more of a discovery-based problem-solving process. And we say, hey, listen, why don't we let students themselves become the designers? Uh, we were very successful with a project recently on the campus of Utah State University where we gave students the keys to the, the design 
process, if you will, and they actually prototyped a brand new online student service delivery model. It was not done over a weekend. It was actually a year-long experiment, but uh, it, in the end, and it took about two years to accomplish, you've got a new online uh, delivery model on that campus that was designed and prototyped by students for students. Um, what was really essential with that process, though, is that all the other key stakeholders, from faculty members to deans to uh, administrators, were all involved. So it wasn't students doing it in a vacuum in a closet, if you will. It was students doing it and being very mindful of the system that they reside within. So this idea of, of giving students the keys to the kingdom, is it's, it's amazing what can happen. What, what do you find students are concerned about? What are, what's on the forefront of their minds that, that maybe is surprising that it wouldn't be on the forefront of if you talk to teachers or parents? Uh, I would say that the number one thing is relevance, uh, and it's a hard, that's a hard, a hard pill to swallow when you're a, when you're in the uh, faculty or you're a teacher. Students are desperate for relevance of what they're doing and why they're doing it, and how can it apply to to future life. They really struggle with setting goals, with setting expectations, especially once you get to the. Uh, the, the high school level, um, understanding career pathways, uh, understanding education opportunities. It's all one big giant swirl of a, of a confusing environment for students, and they don't know how to make sense of it. And what we're finding more often than not is what students are desperate for is simplification, not necessarily being simple, if you will, but a simplification of the system so that they can understand the terrain that they're, they're working in and they're living in and where they're going um, in order to create those those learning pathways for themselves. Of course, uh, there, there could be a, a, a negative flip side to that, couldn't there be, if, if uh, students are focused, and understandably so, on relevance. Uh, legislators seem to be focused on that as well. Uh, so you might end up with a curriculum that's, you know, only STEM, only business, only, you know, uh, delete the humanities, that kind of thing. Well, I think that that's, well, I'm going to take that because I totally agree with you, and I'm going to take that from the glasses half full in that I think that this is a phenomenal opportunity for humanities to demonstrate their value uh, in this new world. I, I have a humanities background. I see the value of that, um, that the, what humanities delivers. Um, it creates 21st century citizens with the critical thinking skills necessary. Um, and I think that what we need to do, and a lot of this is more from a communication standpoint, of we as the experts, if you will, in the system have to really rise to the challenge to to share why that is, why humanities is relevant to a student's academic journey. Mm-hmm. Let me turn to Taylor Martin uh, from the uh, Department of Instructional Technology and Learning Sciences at USU. Uh, you're involved with something called the, uh, let me pull this up again, um, the Active Learning Lab. Tell, tell me what that is. Indeed. Well, the Active Learning Lab started when I was back at UT and UT Austin. And basically, I started with the premise of what is it that we get out of learning from doing? Everyone says, oh, well, if you hear, if you see, you kind of understand. But if you do, then you learn. And so I got into grad school and I started thinking, well, then there must be piles of evidence about this. No, there wasn't. There was a whole lot of opinion. So I started diving in and doing some research on various kinds of active learning, everything from manipulatives, in other words, moving small pieces of plastic around to complete math problems, to social interaction involved in learning, to mobile technologies, to you know anything I could pretty much get my hands on. Um, and started to find some very good qualified evidence about when and where being active, doing helps. But there was also another side to it, which was this was all very hard to capture, very hard for teachers to see where the learning was happening. So that's when I started getting involved in a whole lot of uh, online products that have data streams in the back end that we can do learning analytics, which is basically stats and other kinds of methodologies to figure out from what students do in an online environment what they're learning. Um, And eventually we've kind of come around to looking at more of personalized learning, which is using a lot of these sources of data and sources of information to personalize learning for students individually in online environments mostly, but it can extend much broader than that in that teachers then get feedback about where their students are and they can tailor what they do in the classroom to where each student in the classroom is in a much simpler way than if you're just sitting there with 25 to 35 students in a classroom trying to do that. And so this, you've been studying, uh, you can individualize the education actually in the classroom. This would not necessarily be just in an online school. 
Well, um, online schools are somewhere that, you know, it's one of the best places to do it. It's one of the easiest places to do it because you don't have the blended environment. So everything in an online school could be personalized. Right. I guess in today's world, uh, all the students probably are, at least in part of the day, in front of a computer. Indeed. Uh, But it doesn't necessarily have to be in front of a computer, I think, is one of the keys. People imagine the teacher going away, some giant warehouse with kids all sitting alone in front of a computer. And it doesn't also have to be alone. You could do projects in a personalized learning Mm -hmm. environment where you, you know, we knew we know a lot about how to create groups and what kinds of groups work best together. Mm -hmm. So you could do it that way as well. But uh, I guess the idea would be the teacher could um, could tell where where Johnny is, uh, you know, with regard to where Bobby is, that kind of thing. Yeah, we have a lot now dashboards um, where the simplest version is just every, it looks like your old grade book, every mm-hmm. kid in your class, and then I'll show you the skills that they need to learn and, and by our standards, state standards, national standards, whichever ones you want to look at. And you can see which things is each one of my kids getting, where are they missing, and you can individualize instruction on that or create group instruction mm-hmm. based on that. Now, have you found that it is true we learn better by doing? I I would put a very qualified yes on that. Mm -hmm. Um, In some cases and at some times, absolutely. But what we have found is that we learn better by doing first. So we have a lot of research at this point showing that if you engage in some sort of activity that draws you deeply, has to be well designed, of course, but draws you deeply into what the key problems are in that area. I've done a lot of this research in engineering education. And if you can get into the key problems and figure out what they are and you start to see some of the key elements, then if you hear, honestly, a five to ten minute lecture, students know what's important in that lecture. They've already asked themselves some of the questions. So now they're hearing the answers to their own questions instead of just, hmm, here's a pile of information. Mm. And then we ask you to make something out of it. Interesting. We are going to take a brief break. We'll be back talking about the cutting edge and innovations in education. Part three of our three-part series on K-12 through education. We'd love to hear your experience. Is your child involved in any of any of these cutting-edge technologies? What would you like to see? What innovations would you like to see in your child's education? Uh, or perhaps you have an experience of your own. We'd love to hear that. 1-800-826-1495, 1-800-826-1495, or you can join us at upraxis at gmail.com. We're talking with Christine Flanagan, Director of the Student Experience Lab at the Business Innovation Factory, with Taylor Martin, Associate Professor, and Victor Lee, Assistant Professor in the Department of Instructional Technology and Learning Sciences at Utah State University. Back following the break. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and the Utah Shakespeare Festival, presenting the regional premiere of Peter and the Starcatcher, with seven other productions through October 2013 in Cedar City. www.bard.org On From the Top, we don't just put young people on the show to hear their incredible musical performances. We celebrate the whole kid. We're all members of the Vermont Astronomical Society, and uh, we've also gotten really into building telescopes. I run cross-country, and I run track. Well, I'll eat anything as long as it's not looking at me as, and as long as it's not moving around. I believe the correct term is math stud. <laughs> Join me, Christopher O'Reilly, to meet America's most outstanding young musicians on From the Top, each week from NPR. Friday afternoons at 2, repeated Sunday nights at 9 on Utah Public Radio. Thanks for listening to Access Utah today. We're talking about K-12 education. This is the third of a three-part series on that subject. We have uh, talked about ending compulsory education, talked about the role of parents and teachers. We've talked with Senator Aaron Osmond, who made that proposal about ending compulsory education, with Lily Eskelson, uh, National uh, Vice President of the National Education Association and several other guests. And today we're looking at cutting edge. What's out there? What uh, might be coming down the pike in K-12 through education? We're talking with Christine Flanagan, Director of the Student Experience Lab at the Business Innovation Factory, with uh, Taylor Martin and Victor Lee, who are professors in the Department of Instructional Technology and Learning Sciences uh, at Utah State University. Let's turn to Victor Lee now. Um, it sounds like kind of cool um, research that you're doing, including research on mobile wear devices, which I guess have gotten more and more popular, and you're applying this to education, as I understand it. Absolutely. So one of the things that I think, and especially Christine and Taylor both hit upon, is that, you know, one of the things that we see in education is that 
not as much changes and keeps up with the times in terms of what's available and what resources we can tap. And right now, the technology infrastructure in general has gotten really exciting. We're seeing this proliferation of devices that you can wear, carry that are more powerful than what our parents used, more powerful than what our grandparents even imagined. Um, and they may be within our pockets, wear around our belt, Google Glass has something coming out to wear over your face. Um, and one of the things that we've been considering in my research group is how can we look at some of these innovations as sources of um, ideas and technologies that could impact the way that learning is done in the classroom. So that way, for example, if you're wearing a device that helps track how much activity you've done during the day, um, how active you were during recess, this is information that kids could actually use to address that question of relevance that you'd spoken to earlier um, and that Christine had spoken to earlier. We're oftentimes seeing that kids are not getting a chance to ask questions or bring in their everyday knowledge from outside of school um, or the range of contexts um, to make sense of or use the tools. Um, that the schools have been originally designed to help them foster. So in my group, we've been working in partnership with schools and teachers to design new curriculum, bring in new tools um, such as um, wearable accelerometers, um, such as motion trackers, high-speed cameras, um, which are widely used outside of schools. Um, But what we need are some new models for how that can be done and how that can help students engage in current and cutting-edge STEM content, cutting-edge humanities-related content, and to help them to reflect and engage more with um, aspects of life that oftentimes they don't feel like school is getting to. By the way, is is any of this technology accessible? I'm, I'm you know, could I go and get a wearable? Absolutely. <laughs> Sounds pretty cool. What, what, uh, what, tell me about a couple of these devices. Certainly. Um, well, since the mid-2000s, um, there's been a lot of interest, especially coming out of the Silicon Valley, um, in the power and the increased power and reduction of size in the technologies. And right now, you can go to many technology stores and buy a Fitbit accelerometer and activity tracker um, for about $100. Um, you could get products from Nike. Um, and you may recall some time ago that Nike and Apple had a partnership, um, which is now just Nike Plus. And so they have smart sensors in shoes and in clothing. Um, this opens up a lot of opportunities that really parallel a lot of the other innovations we've been seeing in terms of how people interact with technology online. So you may Um, virtually race against a friend on the other side of the country based on what data your shoes are producing. Um, You can see if you've actually walked the equivalent of the Himalayas um, over this month because you took the stairs. Um, And so that sort of feedback and that sort of um, record taking and record obtaining is being enabled because you can go to places like Best Buy, Amazon. The Apple Store currently sells um, products by Jawbone, such as a wearable bracelet that helps to track sleep um, and daily movement. Um, And we're seeing more smart shirts that are coming out um, that have sensors embedded in the cloth, so that way you can bring out information and look at that. And we even have this this, uh, culture that's come out of it, which is called the quantified self-movement, in which people because they have access to this, and this is sort of an unprecedented access to data, they can run their own, as they call it, self-experiments. They can see, for example, um, do I uh, am I more active on a three-day weekend on a per-day basis than I am on a two-day weekend because it's a three-day weekend? What happens if I read a book before I go to sleep, and how does that impact my sleep versus watching TV? And so they can collect data um, because it's easy, it's accessible, and now there's a whole culture of folks developing tools and making recommendations to one another online, um, which we're also looking to bring into schools as well because that's mm-hmm. real, real engagement and really connecting with uh, everyday experiences. As you're talking about, let's say, a wearable shirt, I was thinking that this here's an application for parents. You know, you, you send Sally to school with a wearable shirt, uh, you know, a computerized shirt, and, and you know where she is all the time. You know, I guess that could be one application. Certainly. I think that's one of the things that you look at, for example, with GPS and mobile devices. And I think the one thing that immediately comes to mind is concerns about privacy. You know, there's information that we do and don't want shared, and especially when it comes to our children or our whereabouts. Um, and I know this has been a really big part of the discourse lately. Um, and so that's a real key consideration that we look at when we work on these projects is what data do you want to make available? What do you want to make identifiable? Now, I think the idea of having everyone having disposable wearable shirts is still a number of years down the road, but I really do not rule this out from the future. I mean, we're seeing smartwatches is currently the buzzword from a lot of companies, Samsung, Apple, um, Pebble, which is a Kickstarter-supported startup endeavor. Um, So it's amazing, and I think that uh, my colleague Taylor can comment on this, what we can do with this plethora of data that's appearing. Um, 
one of the things that we're going to be having to think about is as far as with our children, what data do we want to have accessible and in what form? And then with whom do we want that to be accessible? In the context of a school, though, um, when you have activities within the school day and you have a positive community to engage with things and, you know, well-prepared uh, professionals who can address and uh, deal with issues of privacy but still leverage that data in a way that can benefit and help connect the learning for each student, um, there's some very exciting possibilities. Hmm. Taylor Martin, what should we do with this data? What can we do with this data? There, there's a lot more data out there. There's uh, more data out there than we know what to do with. Hmm. Um, one of the most exciting things going on is that states are coming to realize this. And in the United States, most educational everything is at the level of the state. So we won't have a federal system that has all of the data for all of the kids. It's, it's not going to happen. It's a state-level choice. So that's really happening, and states are realizing what data there is out there. And it's everything from attendance to grades to you know, disciplinary actions, things like that. And they're saying, wow, we've got to step up and figure out how to maintain these data in a safe and and, um, yet useful manner. And I think safe has been the the way that everyone's thought about it so far, and that's ended up in a whole lot of uh, data separated, very hard to access, very hard to use in order to help students learn better and to help parents know more about what their students know or can do. Um, know more about how they're doing in school to help teachers understand uh, what's going on with their students. And so it's been kind of siloed out and kept separate. And now people are saying, wow, we really, really want to use this, but how do we get together and figure out how to do that safely? And one of the biggest proposals on the table, I think one of the most common, is that parents, of course, for their children, because until you're 18, you don't really own your own data because you can't give consent for it to be used for something. Um, so parents and up until kids are 18. And after that, all of us should be able to be the ones to choose who sees our data and when. Um, and how that's going to happen is not quite been worked out yet. But essentially, it's the idea of, you know, you own your own data and you should make the choices about what happens with it. Mm-hmm. Christine Flanagan, let's turn back to you at some of this technology that we've been talking about is, is any of that um, I don't know if you've uh, studied any of the technology there at the lab um, and uh, thinking just in general about application of some of this new technology, what are your recommendations? What are you recommending to to schools that they, that they adopt? Well, it's interesting you say that. Um, our recommendation is to try more stuff. Uh, what we've uh, we did a a study last year uh, with the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation to understand the teacher experience and how, um, in particular, how they make meaning of uh, feedback. And one of the things that we learned is uh, this is a very confusing landscape for teachers, uh, and in turn that creates a very confusing landscape for parents and for students. So yes, while the the, the plethora of data is available, uh, there's a real struggle for uh, teachers and students and family members to make meaning of it. Uh, so what we really try to encourage, uh, in fact, we, we started something called the Education Underground or Ed Underground, uh, which creates a, a safe environment for teachers to come together and actually experiment with all this stuff. So everything from different types of data to new technologies to new blending learning uh, models or solutions um, so that they can play with it in a way where they're not, uh, it's a professional development opportunity for them, but they're not being assessed by that. Uh, Because what we really find out is, or found from the research that we did with Gates is that um, with the, the pressure around assessment and accountability, teachers are really struggling to try more stuff. So we want to encourage experimentation and, uh, and then in turn help students try to embrace this idea of experimentation. But we need to provide teachers the opportunity to do that. And Ed Underground has been one of those ways for teachers to do it in a safe way where it's peer-driven and they can try more stuff. So the movement toward assessment, which is uh, definitely you know in full steam, uh, it would seem to me to, to counteract a, a culture of experimentation. It's a struggle. Um, it's really a struggle. Uh, I, we talked we talk to so many teachers who fundamentally understand the value of Common Core, yet are incredibly fearful that uh, Common Core is coming down yet again to not about um, thinking through uh, and delivering the skills and competencies necessary for students today, but rather how are they going to be held accountable based on a, a, a single or, or a single test. So I think that these are conversations that need to be had um, quite a bit. There has to be meaning made not just for teachers, but for obviously parents. 
but uh, I think the, uh, the assessment piece is always the elephant in the room, uh, and I hesitate this conversation mm-hmm. to go down that hole, but uh, uh, it's certainly, certainly something we all have to be incredibly mindful of because it's a challenge. Taylor Martin. One of the biggest problems with assessment so far is that it's always been removed from the activity. So based on old-time models of how we could assess something, we had to have a test that was separate from anything anyone was doing. A lot of what we're doing in our personalized online learning environments is I can assess what a student learns while they're doing the activity. So assessment no longer has to be, as Christine says, the elephant in the room, that terrible thing that we all go, let's go do this cool stuff. Oh, darn, we have to think about assessment. You know, and now we can have games as assessment. We can have, you know, some things that we've done recently funded by National Science Foundation, Gates Foundation, DARPA, a couple others, um, really looking into what would it be like to have a kid just sit down and play a math game and have a teacher see the results based on Common Core standards, based on Utah Core standards, based on whatever standards they have to be accountable for um, right there and find out right there. Now, it's going to be a long time before we don't have state tests every year. But if we can make assessment a much more moment-by-moment activity that people can see how kids are progressing as they're going along, then we don't have to spend half the year preparing for those tests because we already know where the kids are going to be mm-hmm. before they get there. So our lab, my lab is really committed to to bringing that in and because we can't change those systems of accountability overnight and we're not going to go out there and say, hey, go do this cool stuff. Oh, by the way, it's not going to help you at all on your kid's state test because that's what your job is based on. Mm. So, I, I suppose there's another problem. Uh, if it's going to be true experimentation, I can see the value of experimentation, um, then the assessment is going to have to be forgiving enough to allow that, okay, this method isn't working. <laughs> so we'll go on to the next one, right? Right. Um, actually, Utah is um, taking an unprecedented and really exciting step right now. Last year, or earlier this year, they approved what's called the Utah STEM Action Center, and it's based in the Governor's Office of Economic Development. And what they decided was, we're going to make, we're going to put innovations out there, but we're going to test them at the same time. So, in the last four months, we're working with them. Uh, my lab, uh, Sarah Brazel, is my associate director, and she has worked very closely with them, as have I, to build um, a set of tests, experiments, for 10 instructional technology products around math learning, rolling out at the um, middle and high school level. Um, and we're going to have results for the legislature in just a few months. So, Interesting. you know, they're trying to do the innovation, put it out there but they're also wanting to make sure that they're doing things that are going to have results. Hmm. Christine Flanagan, or, um, maybe tell us about some, some other results that are coming out of uh, your, uh, your lab there. What, uh, what, what other recommendations can, can you recommend broadly based on some uh, success there? I think the biggest recommendation I can make is to um, – we, we touched on it a little bit around experimentation, um, but I think it's also considering each uh, each stakeholder in the uh, the system that surrounds the student uh, as as equal players. So fi- figuring out a way where um, it's it's less of a top down imposed uh, and not always a bottom up spread through diffuse, but some some relationships where um, everybody has a seat at the table. Uh, we did we did an experiment at Pleasant View Elementary School in Rhode Island. It's a turnaround school, K through uh, K through five, uh, and they received a rather large grant to transform itself into a blended learning establishment or a blended learning school. So they were getting upwards of half a million dollars in funding to bring in all of this new technology, and it was an interesting juxtaposition when smart boards were being brought in, and still the chairs were from like 1955. It was this really interesting environment, and the school was really struggling with. Here comes all this technology, which is supposed to be the answer. Uh, and teachers, of course, they haven't been trained in any of it. So how do you create an environment where they feel really comfortable trying this stuff uh, in a way where they're not going to get it right all the time? Uh, and then also, and this is the part where the role that we played, how do you bring students into that? And what we found, and we did a design cycle where we said, okay, dear students, they were fourth and fifth graders, um, you're in charge. You're going to redesign your school day. Um, that was the challenge that they were given. But you have to incorporate this technology that's coming in. Uh, and what we found is actually they came up with some really, obviously because they're students, the really brilliant ideas, um, some of which were incorporated into 
uh, into the school day, uh, some of it which was incorporated into the principal's master calendar. Uh, but more importantly, teachers were looking at students now as valuable partners, um, where it looks now like you're, it's a changing role of a teacher. So you don't have to have all the knowledge. What you have to do is to be able to facilitate the learning, um, which speaks to what Taylor was saying around learning by doing. Uh, I think that's the power of blended learning and new technologies, is this idea of actual learning by doing, um, um, acting our way into knowing as opposed to thinking our way. Um, I think that if if more schools can embrace that philosophy, which gets me back to what I originally said around the role of humanities, um, uh, I think you'll see some of the big changes that, that the promise of disruptive technology is hoping to deliver. Follow-up question. What, uh, you involved students in, in restructuring their day. What, what were some of the ideas they came up with in restructuring their day? Oh, there were a couple of brilliant ones. So one in particular, and it's an it's a inner-city school in Providence. One of the we broke the students into teams, and one of the teams talked a lot about bullying um, and feeling fear within their school, and that there are these moments in the day that are um, really challenging because they just they, they can't move. They feel paralyzed. So one of the teams devised um, a, um, a yoga station, a meditation station, if you will, so that there would be an opportunity. And they incorporated the art class, so it was Students will design their own yoga mats, so it's a very uh, low technology threshold, if you will, um, and you bring your yoga mat with you at a certain point in time when you're feeling like you just like there's struggles with your school day, and you actually start meditating. Now, come to find out there's actually been a lot of research around meditation in schools, and uh, even in sports right now, there's a whole movement afoot uh, with Pete Carroll over there in Seattle, where meditation helps relieve stress. And this is a fourth and fifth grade student who came up with us, or a team of students. The other, and this was incorporated now at the school. And the other, one of the other ideas they came up with was there was a group of students who really felt, I never know what's coming next. I really want to know. I see all these things that people in the older grades are doing, but I don't know what they are. So I want an above grade level station where I can go and actually see and do the work that's ahead of me. One, because I want to challenge myself, and two, because I want to know what's coming up next after I'm done with what I'm doing right now. Hmm, interesting. Very interesting. Yeah, so you involve the students. Involve the students, uh, and, not just, and not just listen to them, but incorporate their ideas. Um, it becomes a way where everybody in the school is working together towards a common goal, hmm. where everybody feels like they're active participants in the process. We're going to take another break. We'll be back with Christine Flanagan, Director of Student Experience Lab at the Business Innovation Factory. It's a nonprofit organization in Rhode Island focused on disruptive innovation. Uh, Taylor Martin is associate professor and uh, Victor Lee assistant professor in the Department of Instructional Technology and Learning Sciences in the USU Emma Eccles Jones College of Education and Human Services. And they study uh, technology uh, analytics and uh, how that applies to K through twelve education. This is part three of a three part series on education. Back following break. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and the Utah Shakespeare Festival, presenting Shakespeare's Richard II, with seven other productions through October 2013 in Cedar City. www.bard.org Did you know that graduates of Instructional Technology and Learning Sciences can land high-paying jobs in several different sectors? including K-12 and higher education, corporate America, government, and government subcontractors. Did You Know That is made possible by the USU Emma Eccles Jones College of Education and Human Services. More at cehs.usu.edu. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. In our last segment now in the third of three programs on K-12 education. This one focused on cutting-edge technologies and innovations. You're welcome to join the conversation if you would like at 1-800-826-1495, 1-800-826-1495, or upraxis at gmail.com is our email, upraxis at gmail.com. Taylor Martin and uh, Victor Lee are with the Department of Instructional Technology and Learning Sciences at Utah State University, and Christine Flanagan with the Business Innovation Factory, our guests. Victor Lee, I'm interested to uh, maybe follow up with a question on, on exactly how you 
apply your studies. You you take such things as heart rate monitors and distance trackers and accelerometers, these things that can measure our physical responses, and you're applying that to to how students learn. Is that, is that a fair characterization? Um, it's very close. One of the things is that we look at those as information resources that students can utilize, um, that they're personally familiar with and personally interested in. So I think one of the things that Christine had spoken about, and I think this really reflects some of the most cutting-edge models that we have for designing new instruction, is to engage students, classrooms, teachers as partners and see what sorts of things they want to pursue and where there are opportunities to encounter real um, educational content and engage in real meaningful activities. So as an example, um, when we had students working with and looking at the kinds of data that they could obtain um, simply by living and going about their business in the day, we had a number of students come up with ideas for things to explore. So one year we had um, students where they were pairs, two pairs of twins in the class who looked very identical, but it turned out both were fraternal. And the question the students were asking is, well, are these uh, students the same on the inside as they are on the outside? So what they decided to do was use the heart rate monitors that um, they'd been playing with and seeing what they could do and designing a whole obstacle course for the kids to go and do at the same time, thinking about proper experimental design, thinking about how to look at the data and being able to draw conclusions from that. So it's one of those situations where I think, you know, one of the things that we're looking at in terms of innovating isn't so much bring something new into the classroom, but look at what sorts of new things are there in combination with what is the individuals who are involved, the stakeholders looking at that has a good connection there? What is some opportunities um, to tap the resources that are already available, whether it's who are the students in the class or the heart rate that one has? Another example we had um, as part of a National Science Foundation study as well, um, where students were noticing that some of the older kids seemed to have um, uh, lower heart rates. So they were wondering, well, as you get older, do you get, does your heart rate decrease to the point that you die. Um, And so what they decided to do is recruit throughout the entire school, um, librarian, teachers, student teachers, to get people who are across a range of ages. Um, And so this is one of those situations where they can start to pose questions that are meaningful. They can start to engage in data analysis. They start to think a little bit about physiology and biology. They start to look at experimental design. Um, And then they look at presenting this. Um, We've had some really terrific occasions where principals of the schools we work at will take time out of the day to go and see a formal presentation that the kids put together, um, which you know I'd say is on par with some research presentations I've seen at conferences. Um, so those are the kinds of activities that we look at in the sense that data can be a resource nowadays, and as well as the ideas and the desires and the questions that the students are bringing into the classroom, which oftentimes they may feel like are not getting addressed. Follow up here. Uh, you were talking earlier about the quantified self movement, or people across the world are taking advantage of some of these technologies and doing similar things, or they're, they're finding things out. You could call it uh, citizen science. That's the kind of thing, I guess, the students are doing. Right. And one of the things that we're seeing is that, you know, as technology has gotten cheaper, as people have gotten more networked and connected and have more information resources, that they're oftentimes self-organizing into sub-communities where they find something very interesting that they've been able to discover. And that leads them onto the same sort of path that oftentimes leads, you know, scientists, historians, other sorts of scholars who start to pose questions because they noticed something interesting that they didn't quite expect and they wanted to pursue it further. They noticed, for example, that, you know, their exercise routine during the day actually didn't burn nearly as many calories as they thought, and so they wanted to look at that a bit more, and that prompts them to look at other resources as well. Oftentimes what we see is that people know a huge amount of stuff outside of school, um, and they bring that with them, and one of the things that we try to do um, within education is find ways to help them mobilize that information and to develop richer bases of that understanding. This issue of having it not connected is you know, exists in many different fronts. One is that, you know, there's so much pressure on the teachers and the schools to reach standard X, Y, and Z, and it's not quite clear that those things are, for one, consequential enough later in life, and two, drawing upon what they know and what they um, would like to know. Um, you know, I think that the innate curiosity that people bring with them is is very much an untapped resource, and I think that as um, Taylor and Christine have both said, the pressures and the culture on what needs to happen in the classroom um, is omnipresent, and it also makes uh, 
teachers feel like they don't have the room or time to take these um, chances or innovations, whereas you see other organizations, startup groups, affiliation groups, uh, meetup groups that have a lot more of that flexibility and can take the risk, and we're seeing some of that payoff. So, you know, one of the things we need to do is look beyond the classroom for sure and see where there are some radical innovations and some really neat thinking and, and neat learning that are happening and then try to bridge those. Hmm. Christine Flanagan, we said early in the program you were saying that uh, Professor Christensen would probably say that what's happening in the K-12 through education right now is not a strictly disruptive innovation. It's it's not coming from the from the sources you would predict with, with his models. But our... What are you seeing out there, and what do you predict for the future? Where, where, where do you think education will have to head? Uh, let me say where I think I would like it to head. Um, a lot of what uh, Victor just mentioned um, related to the activities in the classroom and, and the, the activities that the students were, were doing and performing um, plays into this whole competency-driven model, all these competency-driven conversations that are taking place. Um, so that really what we're trying to do um, is develop skills and competencies and capabilities within students that cross different disciplines. And if you think about the work that they were doing around the heart monitor, that actually crosses a number of different disciplines. It's not, that's not just a STEM or science uh, uh, problem that the students were trying to solve for. Um, I would love to see in the Southern New Hampshire University with their College for America program probably one of the first at the higher ed level who's really considering um, what a competency-driven model would look like when we take away the Carnegie unit and we take away a seat time and we say, instead, here is a, here's a degree that helps to uh, create and nurture competency, which can take place over the course of a short period of time or a long period of time. And it's very personalized because it's based on what a student can do. Um, and ultimately, what you're delivered then is a skill set that you can take either into the workforce or beyond or whatever your, your particular pathway is. So thinking through what those kinds of learning models are at the K through 12 level, and I think there's a lot of promise within Common Core to do that, um, is where, where we're headed. Because if we can bridge that with all these amazing technologies that are out there and available right now, um, we'll start to reach a lot of those, those national goal, goals that everybody likes to talk about. Hmm. Taylor Martin, I wonder if you tell us a little more about some of the science coming out of the Active Learning Lab. What, uh, what perhaps you could you tell us uh, that, that you haven't told us before? With the, the science that's that's coming out of your lab right now. Well, I think we're really deeply exploring the patterns by which people learn and also looking at different ways that they learn. So in some of the projects we have, one of them we call iPro, um, students program on their iPhone, essentially, with a visual programming language. And in that, that we found that they uh, learn programming much more quickly and their programs are um, much more advanced when they can do this in a mobile way. And one of the most interesting parts of that has been uh, the process of debugging. So it's something that's very hard to get students to do, to go back and look at any product they create and revise it. However, with a computer program, you can see immediately it's not working. But with a lot of sit-down computer programs, kids would get stuck. But now they can actually be holding the device in their hand and looking at its, the b behavior of their program and then acting it out, acting out what their program should do in order to figure out and debug their program. Um, so that gives you a lot of you know, time for reflection, deeper thinking. Um, in some of our work with college-level students on developmental mathematics, we found something really interesting, which is developmental mathematics is a course that's created for students who did not get the math they needed in high school or before to be able to actually engage in college-level mathematics. So we have a history in this country of people failing this course just repeatedly and at ridiculously high rates. And all the reasons given have been, well, obviously, maybe they didn't learn the math they needed to before, but that doesn't explain why they can't learn it now. So that's part of it. But all the reasons given before have often been, well, they're kids who are, you know, they've developed a fear of math, or they don't feel like they're going to be able to be competent in math, or they've been told they're not going to be able to be competent in math, and many of the kind of psychological theories around it. So in a sample of about 19... 100 courses, two th you know, 2,000 courses or so, we discovered that part of it may be because instructors aren't assigning the content that could get them ready for college-level math. And then within the content that they are being assigned, which is the lower-level mathematics, students are self-selecting to not complete any content that's more difficult for them. So 
you see a very simple explanation for why they couldn't possibly be prepared for mm-hmm. prior level math because they haven't been prepping for it. Um, other interesting things that we're working on really strongly in the area of kids learning fractions, which is one of the biggest stumbling blocks to later mathematics and being able to succeed in algebra and high school mathematics, is that um, they, when they're working in a game-type environment, they can uh, often learn concepts that they are failing in the school environment and uh, transfer from working in that game environment to um Standard fraction tasks such as, you know, symbolically written on paper, adding fractions. Hmm. And uh, I, we have about 30 seconds. Uh, Victor Lee, I wonder if you could give you, us your 30-second version of the uh, the maker movement and how that's applying to education. Oh, that's a fascinating uh, discussion that's coming out right now. But what we're seeing also, and like I said before, if you look at other spheres where there's innovation and, and some very nimble movements towards new technologies, you're seeing people who are involved in what's being called digital fabrication. We have right now for a few thousand dollars, 3D printers, devices where you can actually make your own physical objects, print out um, games to assemble uh, from uh, plastic made out of corn um, and using laser cutters, which would sort of be the kinds of things you'd find in a machine shop, but now it's something that anybody can have at home. And um, one of the big areas of focus is beyond the common core, there's been a new set of science standards called the National Next Generation Science Standards, and there's a big focus on engineering. There's a big focus on this idea of being active by way of making seems to be a very potent way to support learning and to support these new dispositions that that we want um, the next generation to have. And so what are the ways that we can do that? The maker movement really represents that because the technology has gotten affordable. Schools, libraries, museums have all taken notice and are beginning to look at that and invest in that. But, of course, just like it was with iPads, just like it was with laptops, um, it's not simply buy the technology and throw it into a schoolhouse. We need to figure out what are the things that can be learned here, what are the kinds of activities, what sort of supports and preparation for the teachers is going to best leverage this, and what sort of new opportunities to see real innovation, both in terms of what the instruction looks like and what the students come out knowing will be. We will leave it there out of time. We've been talking with Victor Lee and uh, Taylor Martin with the Department of Instructional Technology and Learning Sciences at Utah State University. Thanks for coming in. Thank you very much. And uh, with Christine Flanagan, Director of Student Experience Lab at the Business Innovation Factory. Thank you so much. Thank you. And uh, for producer uh, Bennett Purser, I'm Tom Williams. Thanks for listening today. Deseret News columnist Steve Eaton. Last weekend, my wife and I traveled to St. George, Utah to celebrate our 30th anniversary, and I almost ended up marking the event alone in a jail cell. It's an unbelievable, wondrous, and amazing thing that my wife even wanted to celebrate being married to me for 30 years. She surprised me by reserving a room at a very nice luxury resort for three nights. No other woman has ever done this for me before. Our room opened onto its own private walled-in patio with a gate that I think was designed to look like the resort was home to some very wealthy pampered zoo animals. All these zoo enclosures opened onto a central area where there was this nice pool that was open 24 hours a day. For some reason, there didn't seem to be many people who had decided to vacation in St. George in August, so most of the time the pool was empty. Late one night, my wild streak surfaced, and I began to consider putting on a bathing suit and dashing for the pool, hoping I could get in without being seen. I'm just a tiny bit overweight, and being seen in public in a bathing suit is something I I avoid during the work week and on vacation. Barefoot and wearing cutoffs, I opened the gate to the unloved pool, walked over to the water, and dipped in my toe. The temperature of the water was perfect, and the pool looked so nice I began to imagine I had amounted to something, and I had my own pool. When I got back to the room, I realized that I must have pulled the door shut behind me because as I tried to open it, I realized it was either stuck or locked from the inside. After rattling the door for several minutes, I knocked in hopes that my wife would let me in. Instead, she surprised me by having her voice come to me from the neighboring courtyard. Honey... What are you doing? She said with that alarm tone she uses when she sees me taking initiative and doing home repairs. I could see the puzzled look on her face as I suddenly realized that I was not in our courtyard. 
but I was shaking and knocking on the doors of the room next door. Thankfully, no one was there. I could see the puzzled look on her face as I suddenly realized that I was not in our courtyard, but was shaking and knocking on the door of the room next door. Thankfully, no one was there. I can only wonder how long it would have taken me to realize there was a problem if someone had opened the door and I had walked in to share with them the plan that had me so preoccupied. How would you react if a barefoot fat guy in cutoffs woke you up in the middle of the night and came to your room to excitedly whisper, There's no one around. I think I'm going to change into a swimsuit and go swimming. No one will ever see me. This kind of thing runs in the family. My father was frustrated once when his rental car wouldn't start. It took him just seconds to realize that he was in someone else's car. There was no one else in the car to be alarmed by this mistake. Even if there had been and he had managed to start the car, I'm sure that once he heard sirens and coupled that with the screaming people in his car, he would have immediately recognized he was accidentally kidnapping someone and would have surrendered to authorities. He's very smart. Speaking of smart people, we have a similar story I like to tell about two people I know who got themselves into a felony fix. In order to protect the reputations of my wife, Barb, and my daughter, Sarah, I'm not going to use names in this story. They don't want to look stupid. This very bright woman I know and her gifted daughter were out going to garage sales when they came across an estate sale. It's been only recently that we discovered an estate sale happens when someone wants an iPad or a trip to Maui so bad that they decide to sell everything in their parents' house, including their parents if they're still around, which usually they aren't. At such sales, you get to wander around the house and pick out things that interest you, and they often aren't marked with any price. This woman I know and her daughter were at such a sale and going through some things in a bedroom when they began to wonder about the people who once called that home. It was as if time had frozen, and now people had been invited to come in and pick over all their earthly possessions. Photos were on display, and it looked as if someone had been living there just days before. The woman's daughter found a ring she liked and decided to ask how much it was. It was in another part of the house, however, that this woman and her daughter met a kind elderly woman who looked just like the photos of the woman in the bedroom. She interacted with them, and they realized that she was not a ghost, and eventually came to the conclusion that this was an estate sale that was different than the others they had been to. They had failed to mark that some rooms in this estate sale were off-limits. They went outside to discuss what to do with the stolen ring and hatched a plan to do a reverse burglary to return it. Within seconds, the felony was undone, and they went away grateful that they had turned from a life of garage sale crime before it even got started. I like staying at that luxury resort, but it was expensive. We can't afford to do it on a regular basis. We've considered waiting till my father drives away in a stolen car and then holding an estate sale. That would be risky, however. That woman and her daughter might still be out there. It's probably best that I just count my blessings and realize how lucky I am to have been married to a very smart woman for 30 years and to be grateful I'm not in jail. This is Steve Eaton. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Crumb Brothers Artisan Bread at 300 South and 300 West in Logan, now open Monday through Saturday until 2 with a changing menu of specialty salads, French breakfast pastries with local seasonal fruits, and lunch sandwiches.